First Timothy in the New Testament. Go ahead and turn to First Timothy in the New Testament this morning. That's where we're going to be in just a few minutes. We're continuing this series through First Timothy. But before we jump in, let me just share a couple things with you that are on my heart and on my mind this morning, and then we'll jump into the text. Uh, one thing on my mind that's probably maybe on a lot of your minds is today is September 11th. Uh, it's the 15th anniversary of the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, D.C. and Pennsylvania. And I, like a lot of you, remember exactly where I was 15 years ago when that happened. So anytime something of that magnitude is remembered and we celebrate an anniversary of that, uh, it's important for us to remember. It's important for us to give thanks as a nation for the freedom that we have. And it's also a good time to stop and pray for our nation. And we're going to do that in just a second. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer for our nation and as we prepare to study God's Word. Uh, the second thing that's heavy on my heart this morning that I just want to share with you as a church family, and sometimes as a church family, we need to be aware and know what's going on in our community, especially our gray community, our very close-knit community here. I just want to ask you this morning to pray for the Rabin family this morning. Uh, if you're not aware of what I'm talking about, uh, Kaylee Rabin was a junior at Daniel Boone High School. Uh, she was on the volleyball team. Uh, she had been here from time to time, different activities. Her family was very active here in the past. And uh, she was killed in a car accident yesterday with her boyfriend. Uh, very young girl, tragic situation. So as you think about the Rabin family, I just ask you to pray for them. There'll be a special time this afternoon at Daniel Boone High School at 2 o'clock. And then the boyfriend named Ryan Sanders, he's still in the hospital, uh, injuries in Johnson City. So it's just on my heart this morning, and that's going on in our community. It's kind of heavy, and I thought we'd just have a moment of prayer for our nation and for this family and for us as a church as we open God's Word together uh, right now. So just bow your heads with me for a second. Let's lift some of these things up before the Lord, and let me lead us in a time of prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you for the church family here. Thank you that we get together together like this this morning and open your living word. I pray it penetrates our hearts. God, I pray that you remove all the distractions and all the things that are on our mind, Lord, that might lead us away or distract us. And God, you prepare us to hear from you. God, we do as Americans, Lord, we thank you for our nation. We remember, God, we thank you for the men and women who have died that make our freedom possible. We thank you for them. And Lord, we thank you for our freedom. And Father, as a church family, we pray for the Raven family this morning and their incredible loss. And God, we hurt with them and we hurt for them and we pray for that family uh, today. And let us as a church family, any way we can, come around them. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, well, 1 Timothy chapter 1, go ahead and find your place there. We're going to be around verse 12 as we continue along verse by verse through this great New Testament book. I want to kind of begin with an illustration this morning. Really, since September 11th, so many years ago, there, there have been some names in our culture that we've all kind of become familiar with. Uh, names like Bin Laden. Names like Zarqawi. <laughs> names that are really hard to pronounce, but before 15 years ago, none of, us, none of us were even familiar with names like that. And over the next few weeks, you're going to hear of another name. You've heard of it already in the election, if you're keeping up with that at all. But you've heard a name of a man, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. You say, I don't even know what you're saying, Pastor Mike. Who is that? Well, this Baghdadi fellow is the leader of the group that we know as ISIS. 
Everybody knows who that is. Everybody's heard of that group. You're going to hear about his name in the election as certain candidates make vows to capture him. He is a zealot for the expansion of radical Islam. He's an incredibly religious person. He believes in his specific brand, and at all costs, he wants his brand of religion spread throughout the world. He's a highly educated individual. He has a doctorate from the Islamic University in Baghdad. He's been charged by the U.S. government with kidnapping, enslaving, murder, and terrorism. He targets many. He targets primarily Christians in a desire to wipe them out, the name of Christ out. And you say, okay, Pastor Mike, why in the world would we start this morning with 1 Timothy with an example of a dude? I can't even say his name because here's what I want you to know this morning and know the weight of it is we are studying the book of 1 Timothy that was written by a man named Paul that was exactly like Abu Baghdadi. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Abu Baghdadi was a mean man. This man is doing everything he can to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ. He is persecuting the church. People are suffering under his leadership. He is a religious zealot. He is highly educated. He knows what he's doing. Listen, just like the apostle Paul was. So when you read the letter of 1 Timothy, there's some things that you read as we're studying through this letter together and you're reading it on your own that really don't make any sense to you until you understand Paul, the author, formerly Saul, until you understand his background, until you understand his story. So you can hold your place this morning for just a minute there in 1 Timothy. If you want to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn back to Acts chapter 7 for just a minute. You can do that. There's Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. You can take that or the words are going to be up on the screen. I'm going to start in Acts chapter 7. And I want you to understand the background of the person who wrote the letter that we're studying through, 1 Timothy. Some of you guys are familiar with this. Some of you are not. Very important before we dive into chapter 1, verse 12, to get some background. Acts chapter 7, end of the chapter, here's the situation. The church is growing, the church is expanding, the early church there in Jerusalem. As the church grows and the message of the resurrected Jesus as the Messiah continues to spread, some in the organized, zealot, uh, Judaistic religion are very opposed to the spread of the gospel of Christ. Persecution begins to happen in the church and a young man named Stephen we find in chapter 7 is going to be stoned for preaching Christ. We pick it up in verse 58 of chapter 7. It says, when they had driven him out of the city, that's Stephen, they began stoning him and the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. First mention of Saul in your New Testament is right here. This is the same Paul that writes 1 Timothy. Point is, he's standing there in a sense overseeing the stoning of a leader of the church, Stephen. He is in hearty agreement of it. How do you know that? Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. This is a mean man. 
And on that day, there was a great persecution that arose against the church in Jerusalem. You have to understand, when you read the Bible, you're not just reading a myth. You're reading a historical account of what took place to your brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago in the early church. So there's a great persecution that arose against the church that day. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3. Now listen to this. If you haven't read this in a while, you need to hear this. But Saul began ravaging the church. Now, not the church building, the people, anyone who named the name of Christ, anyone who dared to be publicly baptized, the Bible says Saul began ravaging the church. The word ravage means to mangle like what a wild animal would do if you were attacked by a wild animal. And he began dragging off men and women and he would put them in prison. Paul was a bad, bad So Paul continues on this zealot passion, zealous passion he has to stamp out the church. He goes to some of the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. And he says, I need permission. I need letters of authority from you because I'm going to a town called Damascus. I'm going to travel to Damascus because I've heard there's a lot of believers there. And I'm going to go find them. I'm going to drag them out of the house. And we're going to put this thing called the way or the church or followers of Christ. We're going to stamp this thing out once And for all, Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the story continues quickly. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters. Verse 3, as he was traveling. Now hang with me here. Now before we dig into verse 3, let's just remember, Saul is on his way to Damascus and he's not going to vacation Bible school. He's not going to a Christian conference. He has a group of people with him. He has letters of authority. And he's on his way to find anybody that would dare name themselves a believer in Christ. And he's out to ravage them. Paul's not looking for God. Paul's not pursuing Jesus. You pick it up there and he's traveling on the road to Damascus, verse 3, and said, As he was traveling, it happened that he was appro- as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Paul's on his donkey or his horse or whatever, he's not completely off his horse, he's laying on the ground, this light is flashing down, only Paul can hear the voice, everybody can see the light, they can see it, but only Paul hears it, sitting hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? Lord? And he said, this voice spoke with him and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Time out. Do you hear that? I love that. Say, wait a minute, Paul hadn't been persecuting Jesus. He'd been persecuting the church. Jesus said, you persecute my people, you're persecuting me, my body. Jesus said, this is, this is me. I'm Jesus whom you have been persecuting. Verse 6, but get up and enter the city and it will be told to you what you must do. Let me just translate what you just heard. God intervenes in the life of Saul. 
And Saul picks himself up. Some men now have to accompany him. Verse 7. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So Saul gets up. His eyes are wide open, but he's blind. And God gives him a visual picture, if you will, of his spiritual blindness by now making him physically blind. He can't see. Paul thought he could see. Paul was spiritually blind. And now God shows him that with physical blind. They get up and they escort Paul and this very, here's the picture, watch this. This very proud, this very accomplished, this very fierce leader now has to be led by the hand by others who are taking him into Damascus. He pictured roaring into Damascus as a conqueror, as a man who was going to carry out his own will. Watch this. And now he is led by the hand into the city of Damascus. God has humbled Saul. So what happened? Well, I'm not going to take time to read it, but between verse 8 and verse 17, a man there in Damascus named Ananias... God makes a visit to Ananias and says, hey, Ananias, you better get ready. I'm sending you Saul. Now, everybody had heard about Saul. Ananias even said, wait a minute, you mean Saul of Tarsus? You mean the guy that persecutes the church? You're sending him to me? Don't send him to me, Lord. Haven't you heard what he does to your people? And God said, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, get ready. I'm sending him to you. Paraphrase, I'm doing something in the life of Saul. Pick it up, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, Saul, he says, Brother Saul. By the way, that was a very hard statement for Ananias. He didn't know if he trusts this guy yet. He's going to trust the work that God's doing in his heart because just a few hours earlier, he saw this guy as the great persecutor of the church. Now he's calling him brother. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes, Saul's, something like scales. He regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. What happened here? God has invaded by his grace the life and the heart of this greatest persecutor of the church. And now this greatest persecutor of the church is now going to be the greatest apostle and missionary of the church. Paul thought he could see. He was spiritually blind. God blinded him. The scales fell from his eyes. And now he can see like he's never seen before. And he sees and he realizes who Jesus Christ is. And he gets up and he now is baptized as his public testimony. We're going to see that next service. A few that are going to be baptized as a part of our church. He gets up and says, now I am a follower. I'm now a follower of this one I was trying to stamp out and persecute. Verse 20 says, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Now Paul cannot stop talking and proclaiming and teaching who this man Jesus is. Now, how do you explain that? Let's be real careful. It's real easy for us to put our church face on, our church hat on and, and forget we are reading a letter in First Timothy written by a former terrorist who hated God, hated Christ, hated believers. Something transformed the life of Paul from Saul to Paul. How do you explain that? Paul was not seeking Christ. He was a rebel of Christ. 
He was trying to step out the gospel of Christ. And Paul, in his own words, 1 Corinthians 15.10 says this. Later, Paul writes and says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Stop right there. How do you explain the transformation that takes place in the life of Paul and Saul? I'll give you one word. Here you go. It's the word grace. Listen to me. Grace. If you've grown up in church, you're in church, you spend a lot of time in church, you're part of this church family, it's one of those words that we sing about. We sang about it earlier. It's one of those words we maybe pray about. We use it in our vernacular. Here's my goal for you and for me this morning as we continue in God's Word, that you are absolutely blown away by the grace of God in a fresh and new way this morning. That somehow, way, our heart will not become calloused and layered with, if you will, religiosity or maybe our own performance or maybe our own accomplishment. But in a new and fresh way, like the Apostle Paul is going to tell us in a minute, we are absolutely floored and blown away and motivated and encouraged and strengthened and challenged and energized by the grace of God in our lives. Because Paul was. So how do you know that now? With all that, kind of flip back to 1 Timothy really quick. Paul is going to write something to Timothy, and he's going to make reference in the letter to what I just read to you in the book of Acts. We're now 25 years later-ish, give or take a few years. Saul has been preaching, he's been proclaiming, he's been planting churches, he's been making disciples now for over 20 years. God's been using Saul in mighty ways. Let me tell you something, that you, when you read the New Testament, and I'm just telling you, I pray this for me, and I pray this for you, and I pray this for anyone who's especially under the leadership or teaching of this church, that you never become callous to what grace is. Not just what grace was, what grace is right now in your life. Now, I'm not going to give you some theological term per se we, we could talk for hours of defining grace let me give you a concept and an idea that's going to help us steer steer through as we talk about grace this morning here it is you can define grace this way grace is the sum it's the summation of all God has done and all God is doing for you and for me watch this to me who absolutely deserves nothing but judgment The summation of all that God has done for me, all that God is doing for me, grace. Listen, Paul never, ever got over grace. Paul, how are you able to lay your life on the line on a daily basis? Paul, how are you able to face such incredible persecution? Paul, how are you able to endure in ministry where it seemed like you were completely alone? Paul, how did you face death? How did you face shipwreck? How did you face all that you faced? Christ in him by by the grace of God. The grace of God. So Paul writes a very personal portion, a very tender if you will portion of this letter to Timothy and he writes it in the context of knowing that there there were some there in the church at Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring that were trying to distort grace they were trying to distort the gospel and they were trying to add this work to it and this legalistic exercise and all these different things and Paul says hold on you got to remember Paul, Paul says let me tell you what God did in my life and is doing in my life verse 12 1 Timothy 
chapter 1. Now that we have the introduction out of the way, we can dive into the passage. Okay, y'all ready? We're going to read through this passage, and then we're going to make some application to our life. I wanted you to know the background before we even read this of what Paul is talking about. Verse 12, Paul says, I think, I think, I think Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. We'll read through the rest of it in just a minute. Let me, give you some, let me give you some aspects of grace this morning that we see from this passage that I pray God sinks into your heart afresh this morning. Verse 12, Paul says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I love this because when you do a little word study here, you realize the word thank is not the traditional word that's used for thanksgiving. It's a word that's actually a derivative of the word grace. It's, it's kind of an outflow of the word grace in the original language. And what Paul is saying is, I am so overwhelmed by the grace of God in my life. What comes out of me is this incredible, great attitude of brokenness and dependence and gratitude. One of the things that grace affects and works when we get it and when we meditate on it and when the Spirit of God opens our eyes through His Word to see the grace of God, to understand the grace of God, number one is this, vital truth. Grace produces deep gratitude in you and me. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord. Over and over and over in the New Testament, you hear Paul use phrases like that. I thank my Lord. Paul was not rehearsing what he had accomplished. Paul was not rehearsing all that he had done. Paul was not to the place, God forbid we ever get to this place, where he somehow felt like he had arrived in his walk with God. He was rehearsing all that he accomplished. All that Paul could do was fall back into the pool of the grace of God and say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Thank you, God. Thank you. Listen, I know that I personally am straying a bit from being anchored in the grace of God when my attitude drifts to something of entitlement. Entitlement is the attitude, and you say, well, that's not me. I never do that. What are you talking about? Listen, anytime what is coming out of our mouth is something to the effect of, well, and I, I, I just, just think I deserve a little bit more than that. <laughs> or that person didn't treat me the way I should have been treated, or I didn't get what I thought I should have gotten or received, and somehow we lose sight of the grace of God that when it's, when it's, when it's, recognized in our hearts here's what it produces I mean a deep overflowing gratitude when is the last time you literally on your face before God or we gather here and we sing of the grace of God or you reflect back over your life it is like a it is like a river comes over you and you say God thank you for your grace thank you for grace that's Paul 
Paul goes on, he says, okay, what, what particularly comes to my mind that I'm thankful for? He says, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. The word strengthen is an incredibly important word. It literally means to enable or to empower. Here it's in a verb form that means a particular point in time when strength and power was given to Paul. Paul was enabled to do something that he was not able to do before. Paul, what were you enabled to do? I'm going to read to you Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Paul's going to give you a little more insight into what God did in his life. I'm just going to read this. You can follow along. Galatians 1, 15, Paul says, But even before I was born. Now, by the way, how many of you all accomplished any really good righteous deeds before you were born? Anybody? Nope, that's the point. Paul says, Before I was even born. When I had accomplished Nothing. God chose me. One of the things you see in Paul's testimony that's so clear that ought to overwhelm us is the fact that if you're here and you're a believer, God in His mercy, God in His grace chose you. God invaded your life. Paul says, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him. Verse 16 is incredible. Verse 16 says, to reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. In other words, how does somebody become a Christian? Somebody becomes a Christian by the, by the grace of God invading their lives. God uses people to take the gospel to them. God always uses people to take the gospel to them. They take the gospel, and then God opens our eyes. God allows us to see, wait a minute, Jesus is not merely a historical figure. Jesus is not just some guy in the past. Jesus is my only hope, and you Fling yourself upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had his eyes opened. This Jesus that he was trying to persecute and totally stamp out. He sees him now through the eye of faith and he believes. And Paul says, God chose. God came to me. God strengthened me. And that's the second vital truth of grace this morning is this. Grace strengthens with divine Grace strengthens you. Grace strengthens me. Paul is so energized by what God has done and is doing in his life. He is literally supernaturally enabled to do things he couldn't do before. Listen, the message of the gospel is not a works-based mindset where I'm going to try to claw my way to God. It is a message of God invades my life with his grace and he enables and he empowers to do and believe and go and serve in ways that I never could before. He invaded the life of Paul. As a believer, one thing that's a great reminder for me and maybe a great reminder for you this morning, if you're here and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, be careful to give yourself much credit for that. Paul said, listen, I am what I am by the grace of God. And let me tell you something. When we hear that, we are, we are of a Western culture. We are of a pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps culture. We really like to boast. And, well, I walked an aisle. I did this. I prayed a prayer. All these things we hold on to. Listen, you came to Christ through grace. You are sustained by grace. And let me tell you what that does. It brings us to humbling worship of this great God because His grace is intended to glorify Him. 
If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you've not crossed that line of faith and you've not come to the place where you fling yourself in faith on the person of Jesus Christ and you are wrestling with it, you have questions, you begin to have something stirring in your heart, let me tell you something, that is the grace of God in pursuit of you. That is God by His grace in pursuit of you. Paul says, God's grace strengthens me. I'm incredibly deep gratitude for the grace of God. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Watch this. Because He considered me faithful. This is mind-blowing to me. You say, wait a minute, when Paul's talking about the past, Paul's talking about when he called him into service, Paul says, God considered me faithful. Time out. Was Paul faithful? Paul was a rebel. And he says, God considered me faithful. The word considered means to reckon, to count, or to credit. Here's what that means. This is an amazing truth of the gospel. This is what we hold out to our three names and the people we're trying to share the gospel with. Here it is. Vital truth number three. Grace gives credit for what we never accomplished. Grace credits to your account what you never accomplished. How in the world could faithfulness be counted to Paul's account or credited to Paul's account? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace has credited to your account and to my account something I never accomplished that was accomplished by the person of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a quick, quick illustration. Let's say you go into class and you take a test. Think back when you were in school. And you took a test, and man, you just flunked it. You made like a 32 on that thing. You just blew it. And the teacher walks in, and you look over at your, your, your classmate's paper, and she, or he, probably a she, said, says, I made 104 on my test. And you're like, God, I hate your guts. Uh, you know, and what's this? And the teacher walks in and looks at you and says, Congratulations. You made 104 on your exam. you're like, all I have is a paper that says a 35. Watch this. And the teacher says, oh, no. I'm crediting, crediting to your account what was accomplished by someone else. She made 104. Therefore, you made 104. That is ridiculous. That is the grace of God. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. His crucifixion is counted to your, credited to your account. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. His life is credited to your account. He lives in you. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. His faithfulness is credited to your account. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul, what do you, how do you respond to this? I mean, this grace of God is to just bowl over us when we think about the grace of God. Paul goes on, verse 12, just continue on. He says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. He's considered me faithful. He's reckoned me faithful. And then he has put me into service. Paul, when he realized what God had done in his life, he was so overwhelmed by the grace of God in his life, he immediately went into teaching and preaching the ministry God had called him to. And what's this? His service, what he did, was driven by grace, no longer guilt. 
I know in my life when my service before the Lord or what our God calls me to do to serve his body or to serve others is more driven by a sense of guilt. Oh, if I don't do this, God's going to get me. Or if, oh, I better do this because God will be happy if I do this. When it's driven more by guilt, it is not of grace. And Paul says our service is to be driven and motivated by the grace of God. Paul says he called me, he appointed me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Let me give you vital truth number four and we'll be finished. You look at Paul's life. You look at the incredible picture of Paul's life and here's what we know. Where sin is great, grace is always Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Let me tell you something that you need to reverberate in your mind, in your heart, and you hold out before the Lord. Romans 5.20 says, but the law came that transgression would increase. So I'd be aware of my sin. But where sin increases, grace abounded all the more. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You can't outsend the grace of God. So Paul's overwhelmed here. It drives his ministry, it fuels his writing. For you and I, sometimes there's, there needs to be a, a heart check before the Lord of what, what, what is my worship like? What is my service like? What is my energy like? Lord, what is my zeal for you like? Maybe. The grace of God has become clouded in my heart and I've replaced it with self or religion or guilt. And maybe the Word of God, the Spirit of God will take this this morning. How do we respond to the grace of God? Let me give you three things and we're finished. Number one, how do we respond to the grace of God this morning based on what Paul tells us? Number one, humble gratitude. Paul said, I thank, I thank my Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I said it earlier, I'll just say it again for us. We've lost a grip on grace when we're more consumed by a self-righteous, critical spirit. And we've lost sight that we are what we are by the grace of God when it's really easy to look down our self-righteous noses to others. Or when I'm more consumed by bitterness or resentment or I'm grumbling, grumbling replaces gratitude when we lose sight of grace. Number two, and when we realize the grace of God in our lives, we live on mission. Verse 15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm chief. And you go to your three names and you go to those around you and you're able to share the message of the gospel. You're able to say, listen, Jesus Christ, the God-man, came into the world. Why? Ultimately to save sinners. And oh, by the way, I'm the leader of all of them. Paul said, it is a trustworthy statement. He never got over this. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Here's a point for you and me based on what Paul says. He realizes the grace of God in my life, watch this, was never just about me. 
disciples that I realize God has done what he's done in my life to hold me out as an example to others. What God has done and is doing is in your life is, yes, it's for you. Yes, it's to his glory, but it's never just about you. And then thirdly, when we get a grip on this thing called grace and it permeates our hearts, we overflow in worship. Verse 17 says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul starts this passage in verse 12 with gratitude and thanksgiving. He ends it in verse 17 with overflowing worship about the grace of God. Listen, personally. I know I've drifted from grace. I've lost sight of the glories of God's grace when I grow complacent, when I grow cold. Listen, let's just take the church mask off for a minute and be honest. There are moments of coldness. There are moments of complacency. There are moments of weariness. There are moments of, I can't know if I can continue this thing. What do I do? Go to the Word of God before the Spirit of God and say, Lord, remind me of the grace of God. What you have done, what you are doing, and let it produce in me deep gratitude that I, like Paul, was a blasphemer, a rebel, wicked. I wasn't seeking for you. I wasn't smarter than anybody else. Thank God you invaded my life. And let it propel us to genuine thanksgiving. Let it propel us to service that overflows out of grace. Let it propel us to worship. Man, we come in here, for example, when we gather and we sing of the grace of God. Spirit of God, don't let us just go through the motions. Don't let us utter the word grace as if it's some just byword. The grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. And so are I'm going to ask our team to come on up and join us on stage. And I'm going to just ask you this morning, how do you respond to this? Really quick, there was a man, you've heard of this man. His name was John Newton. He was an Englishman born in 1710. John Newton, if you know anything about him, he was a man that was heavily involved. He was a sailor and he was involved in the slave trade. He was a wicked, mean, vile man. He eventually became the captain of his own ship. He made his living as a part of this hideous practice of the slave trade. In 1748, while on board the ship, God intervened his life. God stepped in. God opened his eyes. And all that he had heard in his past about this person, Jesus, and the message of the gospel comes roaring back to his heart. God opened his eyes. And he wrote, even in his own journal, in the middle of this massive storm, God opens his eyes and he wrote these words. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And later on, John Newton, in simple overflow, of what God had done in his life wrote these words amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was lost but now I'm found was blind just like Paul was blind but now I see thank God for his amazing grace. Would you bow your head right there for a moment? Let's respond to the Lord this morning as he leads us. Finally, you may be here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been playing a religious game. Maybe you've been zealous for religion. Maybe you've been zealous for a whole host of other things except for Jesus Christ. 
My prayer this morning coming in, my prayer for you at this moment is the scales have fallen from your eyes and you see Jesus as the Son of God, your Savior, and you run to Him. Run to Him. Run to Him. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. Right there where you're seated, just call out to Him. Lord, I need you. Jesus, for the first time in my life, I see you as the only Savior, my only hope. I believe, I believe, I believe. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for this great truth. Thank you for your word. Let us now stand and sing of your great grace, of your glory. And Lord, let us go out in service, in thanksgiving, in gratitude, in worship. We are what we are by the grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen.